You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, well today we are wrapping up the set of sermons that we have been in for a few months now called Formed. Uh, So today we are landing the plane in this set of sermons. And uh, to do that, I want to just sort of rehearse and cover and... and, Uh, rework some of the terrain that we have covered over the last several months. So let me just start in Galatians 4. Uh, There is this moment in Galatians 4 where Paul's pastoral heart just sort of leaps up and off the page and toward the church in Galatia. And in Galatians 4, he looks at them and says, my dear children, this is the way that Paul felt about the church. My dear children, for whom I am in the pains of childbirth. So he's just talking about the the labor that ministry is and he's striving and he's working and he's spending energy and effort for what? Uh, While I'm in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So Paul is talking about ministry. This is what ministry feels like. It looks like me as a parent trying to do everything I can to serve and lay down my life for these precious people. And it feels like Paul is saying, I am in the pains of childbirth. Like I am in labor, working, striving to this end. And this is the end. This is what Paul is after. This is what he's hoping for. This is what he's longing for. This is what he's working for. He's looking at the church and says, this is what I'm after. Christ being formed in you. That's what I want. And really, this whole set of sermons has been an attempt uh, for, for just our pastors to look at you and say, this is what we long for you. This is what we want to see in you. This is what we're praying that Jesus would be doing in you, is for Christ to be formed in you. Yes, we want Jesus in you. Yes and amen. We want Jesus to rescue you and to take up residence within you. Yes, we want Jesus in you. But even more, we want the Jesus in you to be forming you. For for your life to more and more take on the shape of Jesus. That's what we're after, for you to be formed. Now, what is a fully formed heart? This is the way that we've said it. A fully formed heart is a heart that reflects the heart of Jesus reflexively. That's what a fully formed heart is. It means that our heart reflexively loves what Jesus loves, hates what Jesus hates, is grieved at what grieves the heart of Jesus. One of the illustrations that we've used to talk about what a formed heart looks like is uh, just imagine for a moment, just see this is sort of in your mind's eye. You're walking on a path uh, with Jesus. It's, it's the path of just faithfulness with Jesus. So you're walking on the path. The path has a name. Uh, the path's name is joy. So you're walking on the path called joy, just following the ways of Jesus, with Jesus, walking along the path. And Jesus graciously, this is, this is part of his provision for us. It's a part of his heart uh, to serve us and to protect us. Um, Jesus has set a fence um, beside the path. It just runs along each side of the uh, the path. And the fence is meant to make it hard for for you to get across the the fence, off the path of joy, across the fence, out into the wilderness of death that surrounds the path. So do you see the picture? You're walking on the path of joy. There's this fence put there by Jesus to keep you out of the wilderness of death. And so you're walking along the path called joy. Uh, You're doing well with Jesus, walking with Jesus, uh, when all of a sudden you fly off the handle at this person who's offended you. And you instantly just sort of start plotting payback, right? You are running all the scenarios. And it's at that precise moment where you're trying to figure out where you're going to hide the body that you bump into the fence, right? And at this point, this fence that goes by many different names, uh, the fence shows up with this name, fear. And you bump into the fence. You've wandered off the path, bumped into the fence, and the fence reminds you, if I pay this person back in the way that I want, I'm going to go to prison. So, So I want to do that, but I won't do that. See the picture? And the fence directs you back to the path called joy. So now you're back on the path called joy and uh, you're doing great walking with Jesus until you meet that person at the office. And one thing leads to another and you find yourself yet again walking straight off the path and into and toward the wilderness of death. And 
uh, as you step into what is going to be an affair. And right when you're about to take that decisive step, uh, you bump into the fence again. And this time the fence, it goes by a different name. It's called guilt this time. And you bump into the fence and you instantly feel, man, I cannot do this. I cannot, I cannot break the heart of my family like this. So I want to do it, but I won't do it because I just cannot do that to them. And the fence is used by Jesus to, to steer you back toward the path called joy. And you're doing well. You're walking along the path called joy until you find yourself embittered against your neighbor. You cannot believe that they said that, they did that. You just find yourself so embittered and full of resentment toward them. And then all of a sudden in conversation, their name comes up and you just instantly want to slander them and gossip about them. Tell the world about what they have done to you and all of your grievances for them. And, and you're about to open your mouth and do the slandering when all of a sudden you bump into the fence again. But this time it goes by a different name. Uh, th this time the fence is called the law. And you remember right as you're about to open your mouth, Ephesians 4:29. let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And although you want to slander, you don't because you know it would break the heart of Jesus. So you, you, you come back, you, you turn from the wilderness of death and you come back onto the path of joy again. Now think about each of these moments. In each of these moments, we are thankful for the fence. Right? The fence, in a lot of ways, kept us from wandering into the wilderness of death. But the fence is needed because our hearts are deformed. They're wanting and desiring the wrong thing. To a deformed heart, the path of joy looks like death, and the wilderness of death looks like joy. That's what it means to have a deformed heart. We just want and long for and love and are all about the wrong things. The wrong things feel appetizing. The wrong things feel good. This is what it means to have a deformed heart. So in each of these moments, obedience happened, right? It, it happened, but it happened because of a fence, not a reflex. Th that's the problem in all of those scenarios. But a formed heart doesn't need a fence, right? When our hearts are formed, it doesn't need a fence because our formed heart loves what's underfoot, our formed heart loves what Jesus loves. It, it loves the path called joy. It hates the wilderness of death. It sees the wilderness of death for what it actually is, a place that will kill you and kill your joy, right? It, it loves the path. It loves what's underfoot. It loves and longs for life with Jesus on the path. That's a formed heart. Now, when you think about what Jesus is after in your life, he is not just after external obedience, Jesus is not just after, I'm not going to murder them because I, I don't want to go to prison, right? Jesus is after so much more than that. He's after your heart, forming your heart so that you love the right things, so that you're not constantly in a, I want to do that, but I'm not because of some external thing. No, he's after a heart that has been being shaped so that it loves what he loves, hates what he hates. That's what Jesus is after, a formed heart, a heart that reflects his heart reflexively. And this is what Jesus is doing in all of, of us, right? He, he is forming our heart so that more and more this is true about us. Our heart is loving the right things, hating the right things. And this sort of heart formation, it is a fight. It's, it's really, in some ways, the fight of your life. This is why Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Guard your heart. There are no neutral days for your heart. Every day of your life, your heart is either being deformed or it is being reformed. Reform, to reflect the heart of God reflexively. Every day, one of those two things is happening. There are no neutral days. And so what does it take for our heart to be reformed? How do our hearts become fully formed? And we've talked about this repeatedly over the last few months. Our hearts need two things to be reformed. First, our hearts are formed by grace. By grace. A fully formed heart starts with grace. 
The grace of God bringing our dead hearts to life, giving us new hearts, making us new creations. And a fully formed heart is sustained by grace. It starts with grace and it's sustained by grace. We never outgrow our need for the good news of Jesus. We never outgrow our need for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and all the promises that his life, death, and resurrection have secured for us. This is why that we've said that our, for our deformed hearts to be reformed, our hearts must see the person and promises of Jesus. This is 2 Corinthians 3, right? Where Paul says, if you want to become like Jesus, you have to behold Jesus. You have to stare at and your heart come fully alive to the person and promises of Jesus. So last fall, we went through sort of the core way of talking about the promises of Jesus. And we used the four G's for that. Uh, here are the four G's. God is great. So in light of that, we don't have to be in control. That God is good. So in light of that, we don't have to look for satisfaction elsewhere. God is gracious. So in light of God being gracious, we don't have to prove ourselves. And God is glorious, so we don't have to fear people. We are changed by the grace of God. And if we want to press the grace of God, the person and promises of Jesus deeper down into our heart, well, we have to find those promises. They're embedded in the Bible, in passages, so we have to keep our nose down in the Bible. We have to find those promises, and then we have to preach those promises to our heart. We have to remind our heart, keep rehearsing those promises so our heart can stay alive to these things. So our hearts are formed by grace. And the Bible shows us the second thing we need. We need grace. And then secondly, our hearts are formed by grit, by grit. The, the New Testament uses language like work out, strive, toil, labor, press on, persevere, all of those words are used to describe what is needed to grow in godliness. Like you will not grow in godliness apart from these words being evident and being in your life. Uh, this is why that we, we've said over and over over the last few months, if we're going to have fully formed hearts, then our hearts must be trained, trained. It takes practice. This is why Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, train yourself for godliness. Formation requires a grace-empowered grit, right? Uh, uh, just a spirit-wrought striving. Th that is needed if we're going to have formed hearts. Uh, let me just use an athletic illustration to, to illustrate the point. Uh, Tom Brady. Let's just think about Tom Brady for a second. Uh, for Tom Brady to throw a perfect fade, right, and just drop it straight down over the shoulder of the receiver in a high-pressure moment. Right? When everything's on the line, for, for him to do that, it takes him throwing prior to that moment thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of footballs. It doesn't just happen, right? It takes years of practice for, for that to happen. Uh, think about Roger Federer. Uh, Roger Federer does not hit a perfect forehand under pressure without hitting thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of tennis balls. It would be ridiculous for anyone to pick up a football or to pick up a tennis racket and think perfect pass, perfect forehand, under pressure, when it matters is going to happen without practice, right? It, it just, it would make no sense. You are not going to hit a ball perfectly, throw a ball perfectly without practice. It is not going to happen. Now, in the same way, it would be just as ridiculous for any Christian to think, yeah, I'm going to walk with Jesus. And in the moments where it really matters in my life, when I am put to the test, when the day of temptation has happened in my life, in those moments where everything is on the line, high pressure moments, this is those sort of moments in life. It's just ridiculous to think I'm going to do well in those moments apart from practice. It's not going to happen, right? It, it takes practice. It takes a striving it takes developing new habits. This pastor is right when he says this. No one ever says, if you want to be a great athlete, well, first, go vault 18 feet. Like, just make that your first thing you do, right? Nobody says that. No one says, if you want to run the mile under four minutes, just go do that first. No one talks like that. Or if you want to be a great musician, play the Beethoven violin concerto first. 
right? It's just, you don't pick up a violin and start doing that. That's not how it works. He says, instead, we advise the young athlete or artist to enter into a certain kind of overall life. One involving deep associations with qualified people, as well as a rigorously scheduled time, diet, and activity for the mind and body. That's how practice, training, that's how you enable yourself to do all of those sorts of things. And that is equally true in your life with Jesus. Striving, grit, Reformation, your, your heart being reformed requires training. Uh, so we've said repeatedly that new hearts need new habits. There is no changed life without a change of habits. So we have given the last few months to exploring those habits that Christians have used over the centuries uh, to form their hearts. The habit of, of reading the Bible, the habit of prayer, the, uh, the habit of silence and solitude, of gathering with the church. All of these habits that Christians have used to see their hearts formed. Now, today we are landing the plane and, uh, and I want to finish with one more means that the Lord uses to form our hearts. Um, you could think of today as like an epilogue to this entire set of sermons, the appendix, right? This is, this is the thing at the very end that I'm just attaching because this is such an important means of formation. It's something the Lord uses over and over in our life to see our life formed. So we need grace. We need grit. And here's the third thing the Lord uses, suffering, suffering. Our hearts are formed by suffering. James chapter one, starting in verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why would we do that? Why would we count it all joy? For you know, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let me just offer four observations from this text. Four observations about suffering that we see embedded into these verses. Here's the first. Observation one. Suffering is certain. It is certain. Words really cannot convey the catastrophe of Genesis chapter 3. Uh, when our first parents bit into the forbidden fruit, hell literally came rushing out in that moment. Just If you look at what life is like east of Eden, post Genesis chapter 3 in the Bible, it is, it is stunningly horrific what you find after Genesis chapter three. And one of the things I appreciate so much about the Bible is its honesty. It doesn't matter what page of the Bible you flip to, as long as it's after Genesis three, you're going to find suffering present on the page. Job 14.1 tells us, man who is born of a woman, here's what their life is gonna be like. Their life is few of days and full of trouble. That's life east of Eden, post-Genesis chapter 3. First Peter chapter 4, Peter warns us. He says, arm yourselves with this. Like, you need to be armed with this. Like, this needs to be strapped to you. Like, you need to know this. You need to make sure that you, that, that you have this in front of your eyes all the time. Arm yourselves with this. He says, do not be surprised when these fiery trials come upon you. This is part of life in a fallen world east of Eden. And James is so honest about this. Look at verse 2 again. He says, when you meet trials. Now notice what he does not say. He does not say, if you meet trials. Count it all joy if you... No, he doesn't say that. He says, when you meet trials. Can you just do this little mental exercise for me? Uh, close your eyes for a moment and think 20 years into your future. 20 years into your future. And ask yourself, well, what do you think life looks like 20 years into your future? And do you know what's amazing about what we see 20 years down the road? Is it, it's what we might call our designer life. Uh, what we see 20 years into the future 
is a life with no pain, only pleasure. Right? That, that's the life that, that we see when we think about uh, the future. It's life without any loss. But James 1 reminds us that is not the life Jesus is going to give us. James 1, 2. When, when you meet trials. It's not if, it's when. This broken world will break into your life. It's true of your life. It's true of my life. And in some ways, we should expect this, shouldn't we? Uh, we follow a Savior who is called a suffering servant. And part of what it means to be in union with Christ, right? He is in us, we are in him. Part of what it means to be in union with Christ is Jesus' life is still being lived through us. A suffering servant. His life is showing up in the lives of all of his brothers and sisters, in your life and in my life. Right? This is part of what it means to be in union with Jesus. And when I think of, of part of what it means to be a pastor, part of the job description of every pastor should be to prepare people for suffering. And this is what Pastor James is doing here. He's preparing us for the moment where suffering knocks on your door, knocks on my door. He's just reminding us that Life in a fallen world, will that, that brokenness will break into your life. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Suffering is certain. Second observation. Suffering is not just certain. Suffering is also diverse. He says, when you meet trials of what? Of various kinds. So let's just think about a working definition of suffering. Suffering is wanting what you don't get, or it's getting what you don't want. Okay, so if that's a broad sort of definition of suffering, here is what that instantly shows us. That, that suffering has literally hundreds of different hues. It comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes. There's physical suffering. It could be physical pain. Could be long-term chronic pain in our life. It could be relational pain wanting but still waiting for marriage could come in the loss of a precious loved one could come in the loss of a marriage there's emotional pain some of us walked in here today under the dark clouds of depression and anxiety it can come in the form of abuse some of us in this room have suffered just unspeakably horrendous abuse. Suffering is certain. And the shape and size of suffering in this sin-stained world just in a lot of ways seems endless. Just read the newspaper, right? And it just, it's just endless the ways that suffering manifests and shows itself uh, in our fallen world. And if we could sort of get behind the curtain of every life in this room and see into what lives here actually look like, it would take our breath away to see what many of us are walking through right now. For a lot of us in the room, today, Jesus is actually doing a miracle in your life. Like it's a bona fide miracle that he's doing like today in your life. And you know what the miracle is? It's just the miracle of making it. One step after the next, one foot in front of the, you're just, you're making it. Jesus is sustaining you and he's holding you. Jesus is doing that miracle for you today. James reminds us that suffering is certain, that suffering is diverse. And he also shows us in this text that suffering forms, that suffering forms. Again, James is pastoring us here, and part of his goal as a pastor is to prepare us for suffering. And part of what he wants us to see is that every trial, every bit of trouble that comes into your life, big trouble, small trouble, and everything in between, every bit of suffering carries divine purpose. I want to say that again. Every bit of suffering 
carries divine purpose. There is no trial, there is no trouble, big or small, that comes into a human life without purpose and meaning. Look, look again at verse two. It says, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces, it produces steadfastness. Now, do you see that word produces? That is James saying it is doing something. Like Jesus is using this trial, this trouble, this suffering. He is using that to produce something. He has aims for this trial. It aims for these troubles. He's got things he wants to accomplish in you through these things. It is producing steadfastness. And then verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Now, what would be the full effect of steadfastness? What is all of this suffering meant to produce? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, perfect and complete does not mean that you are sinless. Okay, that's not what those, that's not the idea of those words. Uh, perfect and complete means that you are whole, that you are mature, that you are a flourishing follower of Jesus. That's what perfect and complete means. Or we could say it this way, just to use the language of this set of sermons. We could say this about verse four. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Like let suffering produce the right thing, steadfastness, and then through steadfastness, let it produce this, that you may be fully formed, lacking in nothing. That, that would be a, a good translation of perfect and complete. That your heart more and more would reflect the heart of Jesus reflectively. Let suffering form you. Let it do its work. Let it produce in you this result. Let it form your heart. Because Jesus inserts purpose into our pain. In the hands of Jesus, trials transform. Suffering is meant to form us. In the hands of our good God, this is part of what he's doing when he introduces trials and trouble into our life. Jesus uses suffering to prove our hearts, to, to test them. Right? That's the language of James 1, to test us, to, to help us see what's actually in our heart, where our loyalties actually lie. Jesus uses suffering to purify our hearts, to help us not just see our idolatry and where our false allegiances are, but to help us turn from our idolatry and come back to him. He uses suffering to do that. This is why Martin Luther, by the way, said, affliction is the best book in my library. Because it's, it's the Lord using affliction and suffering and trial and trouble to teach me. To, to prove my heart, to test it, to purify my heart. And then Jesus uses suffering to prepare our hearts. What God wants to do with your life just might require a new you to see it through. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Ephesians 2 says that the Lord has set apart good works, not just for other people, but for your life, for, for you. He set apart works for you to do in your life. He's given you life and breath and beats of your heart to accomplish these things. And for the Lord to accomplish with you the things that he has set apart for you to do, it just might require a new you to see those things through. And that new you is often forged in the furnace of affliction, of suffering, of trial and trouble. When I was 21 years old, I remember reading this one sentence from A.W. Tozer. And it just, in that moment, in that season of my life, it just captured me. It became one of the ways I just began praying for my own life. And here was the sentence. He said, it is doubtful whether God can use a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And I think when you read the scriptures, you find that to be true. The longer I live and observe human beings relating to the Lord and the things that the Lord has called them to do, the more I think it's true. It's doubtful whether God can use a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. 
You know, isn't it amazing? I, I remember a guy using this illustration years ago. He said, imagine a person giving you a piece of paper and on the top side of the paper, you're gonna write um, the worst moments of your life. I mean, just the breathtakingly terrible moments. You're gonna write all of those on the top side of the paper. Then after you do that, flip it over. And I want you to write down the seasons of your life um, with the most spiritual vibrancy, the most dependency on the Lord. When your heart was just fully alive to the person of Jesus, write those on the backside. And then he said, isn't it amazing how, how much the top side and the bottom side correlate? The seasons are the same. Our worst moments are our seasons of the most intense spiritual vibrancy of our life. Now, why would that be? That's because every ounce of suffering brought into our life by God carries with it divine design. Every moment of suffering carries with it incredible forming power, right? To make you perfect and complete or, or to make you fully formed, to do that forming work in our hearts. Every bit of suffering carries that design. Now, I think there is a warning in here that I just want to verbalize though as well. Because when suffering knocks on our door, suffering's divine design is the first thing we forget. Right? When suffering shows, it's one thing to hear it on a morning like this. It's another thing when it shows up at your door to think like this and to see suffering like this. So James reminds us in verse 3. I love these three words. He says, for you know. For you know. He's saying, you know this. You know that suffering has divine design. You know that suffering, when it's introduced by God under the, the, the sovereign direction of God, is meant to accomplish some things, produce some things in you, do some things in you, form your heart. You know this. You know that suffering is carrying that sort of divine design, that divine purpose by God. You know this. I just wonder how many of us need to be reminded of that today just seem to be reminded of what we already know about suffering. That under the direction of God, when suffering shows up at our door, it's not by chance. It's not just arbitrary. It's not meaningless. But it is packed with divine purpose. For you know, James says, that what we know about suffering that it comes with divine design, with purpose from Jesus. What we know about suffering makes all the difference in how we experience suffering. For you know, suffering forms. It's producing things in us. Fourth observation is suffering requires a right response. Suffering requires a right response. Trials don't automatically make a person steadfast, right? They don't automatically make a perf person perfect and complete. They don't automatically form our hearts. It doesn't matter how uh, mature you are, we all need to reckon with this reality, that suffering carries with it a powerful temptation to turn from Jesus, when suffering knocks on your door, it's going to be whispering. Um, your God is not worthy to follow if, if things like this show up at your door. If under God's sovereign direction, things like this knock on your door, then why would you follow a God like that? That, that whisper is going to be present in every moment of suffering. There is a powerful temptation that comes along with suffering. And that temptation is to turn from Jesus in it. Uh, this was Satan's aim with Job. You remember our man Job? Uh, Satan comes to God and says, hey, you know why Job likes you. You know why he's all about you, God. You, you know, right? It's because all you're doing is giving Job good things. It's all pleasure. It's no pain in Job's life. But God, if you will let me, Satan, go to Job and, and remove the pleasure and insert some pain, you'll see what's really in him. You'll see that he actually doesn't like you. He just likes what you give him. Now, Satan was wrong about Job. Suffering actually deepened Job's trust in God. But Satan has been right about many. Rather than forming us, making us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, we all know those who 
have walked through hard seasons of suffering and have become bitter to God, have closed their heart to the Lord. We all know those stories too. You see it throughout the Bible. Uh, Naomi is one illustration of this. In the book of Ruth, Naomi loses her husband. She buries her two sons. And in the middle of those dark days, she just falls into despair and says, hey, no longer call me Naomi. It's the uh, word for pleasant. It's what her name meant. She said, don't call me that anymore. From now on, call me Mara. It's the word for bitter. Pain pulled her down into the path of bitterness. And we all need to be aware of this in suffering. Uh, listen to how Tim Keller says it. He says, the stakes are high. Suffering will either leave you a much better person or a much worse person than who you were before. Trials and troubles in life, which are inevitable, will either make you or break you, but either way, you will not remain the same. See the forming power in suffering? When we walk through suffering, it will either deform us or we will submit to it and be reformed in it. This is why James says, requires a right response. This is why he says in verse four, and let steadfastness have its full effect. And let, doesn't automatically happen. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Suffering doesn't have to sever our trust in the goodness of God. It can actually deepen it. But we have to let suffering have its sort of forming work. We have to let it produce steadfastness. And we have to let steadfastness have its full effect. And Job, he's a perfect illustration of this. Job is standing in the middle of the ashes of his life, right? And he looks up at God and says, it's the Lord who gives and the Lord who takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is a picture of a man who is letting steadfastness have its full effect, who is allowing suffering to, to reform his heart. The biggest tragedy in suffering is not the crumbling of our lives, as hard as that is. The biggest tragedy in suffering is when our lives crumble and we waste the crumbling. When we refuse to let the crumbling, the suffering, the trial, the trouble have its full effect in our life. That's the greatest tragedy. And church, we're going to have, we're going to have a lot of crumbling. We're all going to experience as a church family so much. I mean, we did a funeral here yesterday. We're all going to experience so much suffering. It is part of life in a fallen world. We're all going to walk through it together. And can we just make the commitment to one another that we will help one another let suffering have its full effect? to let it produce in us steadfastness and to let steadfastness have that full effect of forming our hearts, making us perfect and complete. If we're gonna walk through the valley of the shadow of death, let's not waste the walk, amen? Let's let the Lord do that forming work as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. How do we do that? How do we let suffering have its forming work in us? Verse one. Count it all joy, my brothers. That's the craziest command in the Bible. Count it all joy, my brothers. It would, um, it would resonate with me and not cut so against the grain of just my impulses if it said something like this. Uh, when you meet trials of various kinds, sink into self-pity. Now, I would get that, right? Uh, when you meet trials of various kinds, sulk about it for a while. I would totally get that. Right? I get all of those things. Sink into bitterness, and I would get all of that. But he says, no, count it all joy. Are you serious, James? Count. He's saying, measure it. D do the math on it. Put all your sufferings on the scale and weigh it. Count it. That's all of our suffering, both big and small. Count it all Joy. Let me just clarify some things around that all joy. That doesn't mean that we just fasten on a sort of plastic smile, right? That's not what he's saying. Joy is a deep, durable delight in God. 
So we're after that, a deep, durable delight in God. And grieving loss isn't the opposite of counting all joy. Grief in our loss is one way we fight with Jesus for our joy. So the Psalms give us a language to lament, to bring our sorrows and our griefs to God. So by all means, we should grieve losses. Yes and amen. That is one way we fight for joy. That's one way we count it all joy. Second clarification. Count it all joy is not a command to love suffering. It's a command to love what Jesus is producing in our suffering. There's a big difference in that. We don't go around just looking for suffering, trying to count it joy. That's not the deal. When Jesus introduces suffering in our life, he is saying, I want you to be looking for and seeing what I'm doing in you and count that all joy, what I'm producing, what I'm doing in you. Now, how do we do that? How do we count it all joy? I just want to end by giving you two encouragements, two encouragements on how to count it all joy. To count it all joy, there's two things that this text invites us to do. Here's the first. is to ask for wisdom. This is verses 5 through 8. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. It is not easy when trials and troubles knock on our door to see them this way. It's not. We actually need divine wisdom, wisdom from God to see our lives and the suffering that God introduces into our life like this. It takes wisdom. So James says, ask for wisdom, like plead with the Lord for wisdom so that you can see it like this, so that your heart can come alive to these truths. Plead with it, ask for it. I want to give you just a couple of just really practical sort of homework assignments. Uh, here's the first. In, in your home group this week, one of the ways that you could help build wisdom around you in this area of how, how the Lord just interacts with and uses suffering in our life, one of the ways you could do that is by sharing your own story of how the Lord has used the worst moments of your life to form and shape you. So in your small group this week, as y'all meet together, I would just encourage every small group to take some time to do that. Uh, give us one or two moments in your life that God used to most shape you and form you. And that's just inevitably going to go into some of the darkest moments of your life. So I would encourage you to do that in your group this week. And then secondly, if this morning you are in one of those intense seasons of suffering, the miracle is you're making it. I, I just first want to say I'm so glad that you've come and gathered with us. We're just praying today that the Lord would encourage you, sustain you. But if that's you, if you're in that season, one of the best things you can do is keep a journal with you, build in daily moments of silence and solitude, and just ask the Lord, what do you want me to see in this? Would you give me glimpses as to what you want to do in me in this season? What would you, my good God, be up to in a moment like this in my life? And you know what the Lord loves to do when you ask him questions like that? Talk to you about it. Show you. Give you the wisdom that you need. So I would just encourage you to build in that space, ask the Lord those questions, and then listen. Ask for wisdom. And then here's the second and last thing, and we'll finish here. If we're going to count it all joy, we need to ask for wisdom. And then secondly, we need to look to the future. It's verses 9 through 12. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I love how one pastor, uh, what he said about this text. He said, suffering is the fitting room where our heads are measured for our eternal crown. Isn't that a beautiful just imagery there? I, I just love that. Suffering is the fitting room. And, and right now, God has some of us in that fitting room right now. And he's got the tape measure out and he is measuring our head for that eternal crown. This is what he's doing right now. And so in light of that, he's just inviting you to look to your future. And for those in Christ, we have an incredibly bright future. Your future, if you are 
in Jesus, you have trusted Jesus, is so bright. It's so amazing. But the Bible doesn't just stop at saying, your future is so bright. It also tells us that every moment of suffering in this life will enlarge your experience of the life to come. So this is Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. I mean, listen to the amazing reality of this verse. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us. It's doing something. It's not just meaningless. It's not just arbitrary. It's not just in your life. No, it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's preparing. This season of suffering is doing something. It is widening your experience of forever. It is enlarging your experience of eternity. That's, that's what it's doing. God is promising in a text like this to bottle up every tear that we cry and to turn them into eternal joy forever. That, that's what he's promising. He, he is saying that the more tears, the more trials, the more trouble you have now, the more joy you're going to have forever. Church, what if we believe that? Like, what if we just took that promise at face value and said, I'm going to stake my life on it. Can you imagine the change that it would make in our life as we experience suffering? I'm going to finish by this quote from Thomas Brooks. He was an old Puritan pastor of a few centuries ago. And uh, listen to what he said. He said, shall we be discontent at that which works for our good? So are we going to be mad at that, which is actually doing something amazing for our now and our future? He, and then listen to the illustration. He says, if one friend should throw a bag of money at another. So just picture that. You got a big bag of money and you hurl it at another guy, right? If one friend should throw a big bag of money at another and in throwing it should graze his head, he would not be troubled much. Why? Because he's seeing that by this, he got a bag of money. <laughs> now listen to what he goes on to say. So the Lord may bruise us by afflictions, but it is only to enrich us forever. These afflictions work for us a weight of glory. That's what the Lord's doing. He's throwing that bag of money. And sometimes when the bag of money hit, it hurts. It hurts so badly. But then we're going to look down and we're going to see the big bag of money that we get to experience and enjoy for all eternity. It's meant to enrich us forever. Would you bow with me? I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful to remove the things that wouldn't be. Just give you some space to quiet your heart and to listen to the Lord. For Him to speak to you. Some of us today, we are in the fitting room. And right now, Jesus is, he's measuring our head for the crown. And man, it hurts. You really are receiving the miracle today of just, of just making it. The Lord's doing that sustaining work in your life. And if that's you, um, I'm going to ask you to do something. And we're not going to embarrass you. We're just going to pray for you. But if that's you, and today you find yourself there in the fitting room, you're in a season that just hurts. 
Would you mind just standing where you are? If that's you. Yeah, thank you. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. We're not going to do anything to embarrass you. Just go ahead and just stand there where you are. That's you, any others? Today, you just find yourself in a hard season. Yeah. Any others? Again, there's nothing to be embarrassed by. We're, all we're going to do is pray for you here in just a minute. Any others? Yeah, I see you there. Any others? If you're near someone standing up, why don't you just reach out your hand toward them and let's just ask the Lord for help for our brothers and sisters today. Oh God, I don't know what each of these men and women are walking through right now. But God, we know that you know. And we know it's not meaningless. But that it carries great purpose. And God, would you protect them from the seductive lies of suffering? That powerful temptation to turn from you in the middle of it. God, would you sustain them? Like Job, would you, would you use this to deepen their trust and hope and love of you, their God? God, would you be producing in them a heart that could let this season in the fitting room have its full effect? God, would you do that forming work in them? And God, we pray that today you would give them encouragement. You would give them grace. God, that you would refresh them. Pray that today just might feel like a just a huge cup of water in the middle of the desert that they're in to help them make it today and make it this week and make it this month. So Father, would you help our friends? God, would you see them through it? God, would you walk with them just like you promised in Psalm 23 through this valley of deep darkness? Oh God, would you do it? And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Amen.